what conditions are stipulations. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we're back in the New York groove, all three of us. And this week we have a friend of my family and thus now the show, Richie Castle, who is no longer Richie Castle, we've just learned. Hi, Mackenzie. Uh, yes. Hi. For the last 50 or so years, I've been known as, as Rich. And we're a little behind on the times. Yeah. But yes, great to be here. Great to see you both. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Uh, We'll formally introduce the show up front because it's been a while. So I'm Mackenzie Brennan and I'm Brooke Rogers and this is Exceedingly Persuasive. Uh, I'm so excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about sustainability and different actions and policies that uh, companies, both private and public, uh, can take to uh, reduce carbon output and help the environment. Um, This is such a big conversation. It's a pressing thing, especially for younger people. Climate change is a problem that you've grown up um, being very aware of. And it's a very scary, (laughs) being terrified of. It's a very scary issue. We're going to talk about what some solutions might be, what uh, the different things that we can do to hopefully uh, roll back the effect that we've had on the climate a little bit, or at least uh, better our policies and actions in the future. Uh, so thank you so much, Rich, yeah. for joining us. And I think this is part of why we wanted to have Rich on, is that after we spoke to him initially, both of us who I think did and, and still will always feel a little bit fatalistic about um, climate-related policy, um, that Rich was able to give us some immediate options that exist in the policy world for making a real difference. And that's not really a conversation that I've heard in recent decades. Mm -hmm. So I think that was really encouraging. Uh, Rich, do you want to introduce some of the work that you do? Because you have quite the resume in this field. Yeah, sure. Uh, First of all, thanks again for having me. It's it's a real treat to be together virtually and to spend some time talking about all these different issues. And I hope that by the end of it, uh, both of you are a little more optimistic (laughs) And uh, so are all of your listeners. Uh, I'm actually super optimistic right now. I've been doing this for a really long time, um, and I've never been more excited about what's possible than I am right now, which isn't to say that the challenges aren't huge, but it is to say that I think that we are at a political moment where climate is getting attention in a way that it never has before at every level of government. Uh, the, The technology solutions that are coming out of extremely smart, innovative, creative young people coming out of school and saying, hey, I can fix this are are just amazing. and I, I think we're we're at the moment, right? And and so I'm actually super optimistic. Um, so uh, you asked me to tell you a little bit about my background. So my background is I've been doing environmental policy work since the early 90s, uh, a good long time. I got into this work when I was, I got a three-year fellowship at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, in 1991. On my first day, they said to me, you understand this is a three-year fellowship, right? This is not the foot in the door that's going to be 20 years. And I said, yes, I understand that. And then he said, 
said, so what's your goal for the fellowship? I said to figure out how to turn it into that 20 years. <laughs> And the short, the short end of the story is I did, but um, but what's relevant to this conversation is that when I was first hired by NRDC, the climate conversation was just getting started. Bill mm -hmm. McKibben's The End of Nature, the book that kind of launched millions of people thinking about this issue for the first time, non-scientists waking up to this being a real threat, had only been published a couple of years before. And, you know, we were still learning so much about what was causing global warming and climate change, where it would go and so on. And in fact, my original work at NRDC had nothing to do with climate change. It had to do with reducing pollution that that triggers health impacts, increased mm. asthma, bronchitis, cancer. So much more of a traditional air pollution approach. Um, and I, uh, over time, what we all realized was that all these issues were connected, right? That the, the same inefficient, dirty diesel engine that was triggering asthma attacks in West Harlem was also emitting carbon that was leading to ultimate to global warming, climate change, right? So all these things kind of came together. So uh, everybody loses or everybody wins if you fix it. Yeah, yeah. And I ended up working at NRDC for 21 years. <laughs> I really stretched that fellowship. Good for you. And by the time I left, I had gone from working on very local New York issues to running all of our fuels and vehicle policy work nationally, doing the same thing globally. Yeah. And I had also created a separate organization called the Partnership for Clean Fuels and Vehicles that would expand this work to developing countries. And it's now housed in, a, in one of the UN agencies, the UN Environment Program. Um, it's been on the ground in 100 countries, roughly. And it is the organization that successfully ran the global campaign to eliminate lead from gasoline. Mm -hmm. We started almost 100 countries used lead. Today, only two do. Yemen Which and two? Algeria. Okay. <laughs> Yemen and Algeria. Uh, we learned somewhere along the way we had very little control over what happened in Yemen and Algeria. Yeah, they have Health other runs. problems. Yeah, they have yeah. other focuses <laughs> on right now. Exactly much right. In general, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. But it taught me something really important for this conversation, which is that there was something really great about understanding that there are technical solutions to some very vexing, difficult problems. Yes. And that once you figure out how to do it in one location, which for me was New York City, can adapt and replicate and scale those solutions to other settings and then get really big, really big uh, wins and, and benefits and improvements as a result. You know, we started with this little campaign that was focused on New York City's 4,500 transit buses. And by the time we were done, we had created something that was worldwide that is eliminating roughly 1.3 million premature deaths every year. Oh my goodness. That has for every dollar invested in cleaning up these emissions is generating 13, 14, 15 dollars in health benefits. You can't find a better investment, really, you know. Yeah, again, with the everybody wins. Everybody wins. And I think we're now at a moment where some of that is going to happen in the climate stage. So what are you doing now? Ah, so, hey. um, so I left NRDC a few years ago and uh, for a bunch of different 
reasons, a little bit having to do with the realities of two kids heading towards college years, um, but also because I had this idea, which was that I really felt that we we're on the cusp of the private sector shifting in pretty dramatic ways to investing in clean energy, sustainable transportation, and sustainability across the board. And that as a result of the great policy work that I had seen, and in some cases been part of, we now had in so many cases, the policy structure that would allow companies to change their business model, change what they're doing, decarbonize, clean up their emissions, and do things in a sustainable way. And I wanted to be part of that. And so since I left NRDC, I've been consulting with uh, startups that have new emerging technologies that wouldn't exist but for the policy opportunities that were created that enabled them. Um, I work with some larger companies, some of which are, you know, have been around for 100 years that have said, hey, we want to figure out how to be the leaders in the sustainability part of our work. And we want to we really want to move to a low carbon future and we'd like some help to make sure we do it right. And then I work with a number of different nonprofit organizations, local ones, statewide ones, and even still NRDC. And then I chair an EPA technical committee, which advises the agency on its emerging fuel and vehicle technology questions. And if people don't know what EPA is, it's the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and that's the federal agency that oversees air pollution and climate change, the issues I focus on. Mm. And I do all of that under the umbrella of a firm called Capolino, which is based in New York. And uh, with a great team where we all sort of agree that like the name of the game here is not to just work with whoever walks through the door on energy and transportation issues, but to only work with the people, the companies, the people, the organizations and the institutions that are trying to drive this low carbon. Mm. That's kind of what I do now that I uh, left NRDC, although plenty of people would say I never quite left. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's the alternative. Lingering presence. That's great. So the way that we're going to frame this is the the two big examples that Rich had given us were the concrete industry and diesel fuel. And so things that both create a lot of environmental problems, but that there are feasible or at least entertainable policy fixes that could start relatively soon and start making changes relatively soon. So we are going to get Rich to frame both of those problems for us and some of the potential policy solutions. Do you want to start with the diesel one? Yeah, that sounds great. I remember in our first conversation when you were discussing this, you had talked about the long-term goals of certain organizations like New York City Transit and how, when you think about like how far forward in the future they are um, and how long they're going to take, the conversation we're going to have today is about what can be done now in between uh, while they're trying to reach those longer-term goals. Thank you for bringing that up, Brooke, because I think that that was indeed how we wanted to frame it. That as you had said, Rich, we hear a lot of conversation around making things electric, and that seems to be a longer term solution. Maybe it's prioritized because it's an easy, familiar, it's not looking forward to innovation, it's not difficult to grasp, but it is there, it's doable, but that maybe that's not the most efficient. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't want to be friends with Elon Musk? Um, who took Grimes from us. But I wouldn't mind. uh, Fair enough. Exactly. I had a driveway. Um, (laughs) You're you're Musk neutral is what you're saying. Musk neutral. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so framing decarbonization, do you want to define that for us up front and distinguish it? Yeah, thanks. So if we want to solve the global warming challenge, 
we have to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere, right? That's at its most basic. Climate change is happening because we have pumped so much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that we've changed the basic chemistry of the air we breathe and all the way up to the upper atmosphere, right? And to even step further back from that to define greenhouse as exactly what a greenhouse does, I think that's why it earned that that title, that when we put those other gases into the atmosphere, it keeps everything, it keeps the heat in in a different way than our previous atmosphere composition did. That's right. That's right. And so carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas, or CO2 is the greenhouse gas most people know of, about and think about. There are others. Methane is getting a lot of attention now. Cow burps. Um, yeah. And that's cow burps. <laughs> also leakage from gas fields and gas pipelines. So lots of natural gas leaks in the system from when it's first coming out of the ground somewhere in the western United States or Canada, Pennsylvania or wherever, and when it actually hits your stove. Um, so there's methane, there's something called black carbon, which is comes from incomplete combustion. Uh, and there are a couple of others, but the, they all operate in more or less the same way, which is that they are creating this blanket, if you will, around the, the world that is elevating temperatures, air temperatures, sea temperatures, accelerating uh, global ice melting, uh, snow caps, uh, you know, glaciers on mountains and all the more frequent, more intense storms and so on. And so the laundry list of all the different impacts. Um, and in order to stop the global warming that's happening and then start to reverse tide altogether, we actually need to decarbonize the entire economy, right? O over time, we have to hit everything, right? And I say decarbonize because in a sense, almost everything we do emits some form of carbon along the way in our, you know, in what we do in our daily life from uh, the products that we use, the food we eat, the transportation that we do, the heating of our homes, the air conditioning, it's getting hot in New York. That, that we're going to soon turn on. Everything is emit is is emitting greenhouse gases, CO2, and other ones, and we need to stop that. And the way to stop that, you know, is to decarbonize the activity. Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work to, to change the activity. After all, we as a society and uh, are not going to stop heating and cooling our buildings. We're not going right. to stop eating the food that we eat in some fashion. We, we're not going to stop transportation. We may alter and modify how we do all of these things. We're not going to stop to them. So we need to decarbonize the activity. And then when we think about that, the way to really think about this is to think about it as it's not one size fits all. We absolutely need to electrify what can easily be electrified. Getting back to the, that Tesla that so many of us would like to have, right? Where we can replace combustion with an electric vehicle, where we can electrify buildings, appliances, and so on, that's going to be the more efficient, lowest emitting way to do operate that thing, right? Broadly mm -hmm. defined, whether it's in a building or a transportation, right? But it, that, but electrification is not going to be for everything. And so we think about it, I think about it in terms of how do we decarbonize the whole economy and then what works in each? So 
where it makes sense to electrify, well, electrify cars. That's a, that is a, technically we understand how to do it. There are, there's implementation hurdles after all, we got to figure out how to charge all those cars mm-hmm. and we have to clean the grid to account for the power that's going to be needed to charge the yeah. cars. But there's no question that the, that it's a huge net positive to replace combustion, traditional cars fueled by fossil fuels with an electric car that's fueled by renewable energy. We got to work towards that. That's, that's relatively easy. But then you have other settings where electrification doesn't quite work. Long haul trucking, the truck that goes from the port of Long Beach all the way to New York City is not going to be electric. It's going to run on some form of diesel fuel. Well, we can't just not care about that because if we can figure out how to decarbonize it, that's an important part of the whole mix. So I think one of the ways that you had put it to us that was it was a good illustration for me to understand why that solution maybe didn't fit these types of problems was talking about the number of trucks on the road, yeah. for example. So if you if you have this goal of, yes, electric cars, awesome goal, let's work towards that as an ideal when it is doable. But here's the big asterisk. We can't just turn all of that over overnight such that we start seeing a difference now. So cars run for X number of years and they stay on the road. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's a great way to put it because we are, we are living in a country with about 200 million cars and about 13 million, 15 million trucks, plus or minus in both cases. And the cars that are sold today will be on the road at least 10 years from now, if not 15. The trucks that are sold today will be on the road 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. So if we want to hit a decarbonization goal of 2050, where where we pretty much all have a consensus in the environmental policy community of net zero by 2050, net zero by 2040, if we can, but 2050 for sure, to avoid the worst of climate change. Okay. To avoid Florida being underwater. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stay with your neutral frame. I'm a Florida. Florida um, neutral, must neutral, yes. But, you know, if we want to actually pause the growth in greenhouse gases and start to reverse the tide, we really have to hit net zero as soon as we can, which means that we're reducing overall emissions at least 80% by that time. Oh, wow. And then we're finding ways to capture and sequester or otherwise deal with the emissions that are left. Yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. But, but basically, you know, acknowledging that there'll be some combustion, but we have to find ways to de- even decarbonize that combustion, uh-huh. right? So the way to think about it is to think about in terms of what can you do with each piece of that puzzle, right? So there are certain niches that are really ripe for electrification. Cars, school buses, transit buses, urban delivery vehicles that don't drive a lot of miles but come home at night to a, a central depot, and so they just plug in overnight while, while everybody's asleep. Those are all great niches for electrification as of right now, right? Because not too much has to change to make that happen, have to, to implement that. Yeah, we have to put in the charging infrastructure, but mm-hmm. the technology's there. You know, we can buy a Tesla or a Tesla car, a Ford F-150 truck soon. Yeah, how about wow. that? The, you know, the number one selling truck in America will soon be electric. We can get a BYD transit bus. We can get, you know, their electric school buses. I mean, we can do all that. So, and I'm sure those options are far more appealing to people, especially after uh, the gas shortage from the pipeline being hacked recently. Uh, right. so I'm sure a lot of people are looking at electric cars and saying, what if 
I did that? What if, what if I didn't cars? have to carry gas in a grocery bag? You know, what if electric cars are an option? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then, so then you go to the next set, which is diesel trucks and diesel engines that are used in um, other settings, construction equipment, farm equipment, industrial mm-hmm. settings, right? Those are huge engines, huge power and torque needs. They, they're not going to electrify anytime soon. But, is that the kind of engine that when you smell that exhaust smell, is that typically diesel? Probably. <laughs> I think of them as being more obtrusive and you can see smoke belching out of them if they're idling on your street. Right. That would you be can a the damage. maintained diesel engine. It shouldn't actually do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, a poorly maintained one will be. Another story. Yeah. And that's another story. That's right. Um, but so there, you know, the diesel engine is actually super efficient engine and it actually meets the needs of people who use it. It's really powerful. It's got a lot of torque for pulling things and carrying things. It's got, uh, you know, it's incredibly reliable and durable. So if you're a fleet, that all that matters, right? Whatever is going to replace today's status quo has got to be just as good, mm-hmm. frankly, better, if it's really going to take off and, and hit scale, right? Yeah, it's a hard sell to replace something that's yeah. that reliable and that universal. Yeah. If yeah. you're a corn farmer in Iowa, your question is probably going to be, can my equipment actually do the job? You're probably not going to be prioritizing carbon output over, right. is this going to actually clear the field that I need to, or, you know, pull whatever equipment that I needed to. Um, so you have, I think, you know, when you're thinking about the mentality of consumers of these products, it is going to be like, is this going to be on the same level? Can this do the same job as my previous equipment? So you have to offer them something like that. That's right. It's got to be able to do the job. And I think it's got to be able to do it better. And I, and I think that the way it does it better, there are two ways it, do, it can do it better. One is on cost because that farmer you're thinking about goes through every growing season, hoping that the numbers mm-hmm. work at the end. Yeah. Um, and that's true for every food delivery company. It's true for package delivery companies. It's true for everybody. So cost is one. And the other is the carbon output because the reality is that all things being equal, companies will choose the lower carbon, I believe. They'll choose the lower carbon option. That's that's increasingly an advantage, uh-huh. right? It's increasingly something they care about. I mean, when I first started doing this stuff, I don't know that people in all the different industries I was interacting with, whether they naturally cared one way or the other. But that was that's a couple generations ago by now. I was thinking, yeah, when you said 91, the Exxon Valdez was within a year or so of that. That's that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's so, right. Huge oil spill. Yeah. So, so I, I think that um, I find that it is an absolute value add in every industry I can think of. If you can provide a, a lower carbon option that's cost competitive and does the job. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we do that? And so in yeah. the diesel world, with it, all those long haul trucks and agricultural equipment and so on, um, I think that a big part of the answer is going to be a much lower carbon uh, approach to combustion. Now, there are people who are listening who, whose heads just exploded. Mine is combusting in and of itself. Yeah. Combustion is combustion. And I'll leave aside the fact that that electric vehicle is plugged into a wall which is connected to a power plant which has combustion right <laughs> well, so exactly. i was wondering that too 
I leave where we're getting the electricity. But, yeah. <laughs> but right now, that truck fleet can use a renewable form of diesel fuel that is extremely low carbon, maybe as much as 80% lower than fossil fuel is replacing. Wow. And um, the engine thinks it's burning regular good old-fashioned diesel. It's chemically indistinguishable, which means that the engine is more than happy to operate on that renewable diesel. That's one approach. So what is that? Just before we move off of that one, yeah. what is that renewable diesel? What's the catch? Is there a catch? The catch How do is... We get it? That if you don't have the right policy mechanisms in place, uh, it costs too much. Mm. Oh. California, which has something called a low-carbon fuel standard, which essentially requires high-carbon fuels like gasoline and diesel to the producers or refiners or distributors of that, have to somehow buy credits from the low-carbon folks in order to sell their high-carbon fuels, which creates a big pot of money that'll help pay for the charging infrastructure, low carbon, so on. And so you have fleets in California today that use petroleum diesel in New York or Chicago hmm. and, and renewable diesel in California. There's a natural gas version of that too. So we see it working in California with this right. dual carrot stick sort of policy system. Yeah. You know, I, I work with a number of startups that are coming up with new ways to think about solving old problems. One of the startups that I work with is a company called Clearflow based in Chicago, and they have an idea about using alcohol fuels, ethanol, mm -hmm. as a way to put a low carbon, today low carbon, in the future potentially zero carbon or even carbon negative fuel into a diesel engine. You tweak the engine a bit to enable that to happen, and now you've maintained the power and torque, and you've eliminated the carbon. You've also eliminated the particulates and other health-related pollutants wow. that yeah. trigger asthma attacks, and you can do that fast you can scale we're still you know we're still in the early stages of this but it's super exciting mm. and i think that the key to getting all this out there all these different solutions not it's not going to be one size fits all but it already isn't mm -hmm. the farmer right. already uses a different engine than the transit fleet and that and both of them use a different engine than you and i drive yeah so it's never been one size fits all so that doesn't scare that's me that's a good way of framing it yeah is that all this technology can happen and you know in california because of their low carbon fuel standard, the fuel mix is really different than it is here in New York, where the where the low carbon fuel standard hasn't passed yet. I hope it passes this session. Knock on wood. I hope it does. That sound you, you heard is me knocking on my head for good luck. Um, and I, I hope that happens. But it shows you that there are, you know, there's just two examples of how you could decarbonize using the existing engines. Yeah. Which is really great because, yes, 2040, we should have electric trucks and buses mm -hmm. in the niches where they make sense. Absolutely. But in the meantime, let's decarbonize what's already on the road because those trucks will be on the road, number one. And number two is, I just don't think it's appropriate to say to the parent of a five-year-old asthmatic kid, don't worry, in 2040, we're going to have an electric vehicle. Right. No. Hold on. Yeah. No, hold on. Right. right. So, so I think it's really, I think we're at this really interesting moment. Then layer on top, President Biden talking about trillions of dollars of investments in terms of uh, in the you infrastructure know, across, bill in the infrastructure bill and in 
funding existing programs that have been on the books for years, but never fully funded. And, you know, and then all of a sudden the whole picture starts to change, which is, I think, super exciting and really compelling. Yeah, so you're I, saying, sorry, I just wanted to clarify this really quick because I'm curious. The reason why uh, this renewable diesel is not used in a more widespread way nationally is because only certain states like California have policy incentives for companies to use uh, lower impact diesel, more renewable diesel. And so, but is there a disincentivization elsewhere that keeps companies from switching to this of their own accord? I think so, because I think that we subsidize in all sorts of ways, direct and indirect, the fossil fuel industry, mm-hmm. selling high carbon diesel fuel, mm-hmm. gasoline fuel at a price that to the consumer seems cheap, mm-hmm. but the price to society is climate change and uh, tens of thousands of premature deaths a year and hundreds of thousands of asthma attacks a year. And so I think the actual cost is really high. And you uh, probably add so- to that disincentive, the if it ain't broke kind of mindset combined mm-hmm. with general public's ignorance of what a difference it could make. Because even mm-hmm. that you're saying that about the impact on a lot of individuals um, and a lot of structural systems too, I don't know how many of us collectively know that this is what's connected to that. And here is this easy-ish way to fix it if we just advocate for the right policy. Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, And it's not just California. This low carbon fuel standard is in Oregon. It just got passed in Washington. It's in British Columbia. There's Mm -hmm. a Canadian federal version of it uh, that's coming online. So, you you know, I think that there's a growing understanding in in the policy world that we need complementary policies to electrification that mm-hmm. decarbonize everything that can't electrify anytime soon. And and this is the best approach because it's fuel neutral, it's technology agnostic. It's just basically saying, what's the carbon intensity of, of your idea, of your fuel or other idea? Let's and and if it's low carbon, you're gonna get credits. If it's high carbon, you better find credits somewhere. And then that market goes straight into, let's put electric charging in depots in low-income urban communities. Let's put low-carbon engines and fuels into agricultural equipment in the San Joaquin Mm -hmm. Valley. Let's, you know, and on and on and on. So it really is a well-tailored, on a statutory side, because I know, and I do want to talk to you about this a little bit, statutes and policy that foster innovation rather than foreclose it because i think that that that's a huge problem with so many things that we talk about uh brooke and i have done episodes about things that rely on medical science and yet statutory drafting doesn't really consult medical science et cetera et cetera Mm -hmm. um but that sort of carrot and stick approach in the statute seems like such a well-tailored way to address a problem and it's something that you don't see with policy in a lot of industries that should rely more on science, but that, you know, at the same time with one stroke, you are incentivizing one group and funding the other group with the, you know, the penalties charged on, on those Mm. on the other side. You know, you raised, you just raised something. I think it's really important, which is, you know, really letting the science dictate where the policy should go. And the corollary to that is not prejudging where it all should go. Hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we sometimes make is when we try to pick winners. 
and we try to say, okay, this is the answer. And we do it in environmental policy from time to time, and it always ends up being not quite the right thing. I think we're much better off setting performance standards, setting a goal, and then, and it's fuel neutral, it's technology neutral, and then saying to the industry, come up with the fastest, most cost-effective way to do this. Because usually what ends up happening, not usually, it's hard to find, think of a counterexample, what usually ends up happening is that something gets developed that nobody foresaw. Because mm. why would you? I mean, why would you? <laughs> um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the New York example that sure. the statutes didn't quite adequately predict where innovation might go? Yeah, let me translate that a little bit, yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind. It's, so this is, a bill, this is a law called Local Law 97 of 2019, a.k.a. the Climate Mobilization Act, which included Local Law 97 and a couple of other local laws. And the concept is that it will, over time, decarbonize the building sector in New York. The building sector in New York is the largest source of greenhouse emissions. And, and it's a very tricky one to clean up because buildings that we'll have in 2050 are for the most part already built. Mm -hmm. At least in this city. Could you explain why there's it's such a high um, emitter of greenhouse gases? It has to do in part with other sources being relatively clean. We don't actually, so the biggies in sort of the, you know, in sort of the greenhouse budgeting world <laughs> would be transportation, which would be the largest national chunk of emissions and just under 30%. Um, but in New York are, are relatively low because so many of us rely on transit, walking, bikes, scooters. We're not a car city, yeah. We're in not the a same car way. city in the same way that most of the rest of the country is. The next big chunk is electricity, but electricity tends to come from somewhere else in New York. We don't actually generate that much electricity in New York. We do generate some, but most of our electricity is coming in from outside. Next on sort of the federal list would be industry, manufacturing and so on, but we don't actually manufacture all that much. The industrial sector in New York is, is, is not what it used to be and arguably is, you know, it's, it's in offices, right? So, so that so the industrial sector of manufacturing and so on, big chunk nationally, just under a quarter, but much less so here. And then you get buildings, commercial and residential, which nationally is probably about 12 or 13 percent. But here is you know more than twice that. And it's the biggest piece um, because some of those others are, are quite low. Right? Does it have anything to do with the building's age? It does have something to do with the building's age, but it mostly has to do with the fact that we have a lot of people in those buildings, either living or working mm -hmm. and using energy, you know, while they're doing it. Right? Sure. And the fifth, by the way, the fifth slice of the, like the, the federal greenhouse pie would be agriculture, but we don't have a lot yeah. of agriculture here. No. <laughs> so that's why in New York, buildings are outsized. So, so, but New York City adopted the Paris goal of 80% reductions by 2050. And then we looked at the, and I was part of the technical team that did this. Well, how would we do that in New York? Right? Because New York City is different than yeah. the nation as a whole. Mm -hmm. 
and we realized the building sector was such a big piece of it. This local on 97 aims at the big buildings, more than 25,000 square feet. We've got about 57,000 of them. Wow. <laughs> big Jesus. numbers here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there were a lot oh. of big numbers. Yeah, was a, okay. And that we would somehow retrofit all those. And principally, we would, the local on 97 was designed to drive buildings towards electrification, so swapping out old oil or natural gas boiler systems for electric. And, and where that wasn't possible, the law mostly envisioned that building owners would either meet the goals by finding a way to buy renewable power that's either generated in the city or somehow where that's transmitted directly into the city. So mm. rooftop solar, offshore wind, uh, upstate renewables that are transmitted down into the city under lines that are not yet built but are proposed. Um, and then there would be a couple of other ways that would sort of fill in some of the cracks in, in that system um, to allow building owners to do it. Here's the problem, though. Problem is that th that a lot of building owners said, wait a minute, I just switched from oil to natural gas a couple of years ago uh -huh. in response to a different local law <laughs> that said I had to clean up the sulfur emissions and the particulate emissions coming out of my building. And, and you, New York City, told me that the best way to do that was to switch from oil to natural gas. I got a boiler a third that's got 30 years of life and I'm only six years into it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of it. And probably cost a lot up front. And huh? It probably costs a lot of money. And not only that, by the way, my tenants haven't paid rent in a year. Right. Now, yeah, yeah. That we're so looking at this post-COVID. Hold on. <laughs> so, exactly. Hold on. Give me a break. So there are folks who are saying, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a way to decarbonize buildings that still use natural gas. Well, it ends up you know, again, smart people in the startup world are saying, let me figure that out. So another company I'm working with is called Carbon Quest. And they came up with this idea that you would capture the carbon that comes out of the natural gas boiler before it ever gets to the atmosphere. That's awesome. <laughs> and then you would store it and then you would sequester it permanently in something else that needs a lot of CO2 in order to be done. Wastewater mm. treatment is one example that aquaculture is the second. The one I really like is concrete because concrete is this huge source of greenhouse emissions that we don't really have a good answer for. You can't. What was the concrete. what was the stat on on the size of the concrete industry? The cement and concrete industry together, if it was a country, would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world behind China and the United States. I mean, that that's was shocking to me. It's a, no idea. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's a crazy number. It's a crazy number. So, so you could create this sort of neat closed loop idea where basically Carbon Quest is capturing the carbon coming out of a boiler before it ever hits the, emission, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then they're sequestering it into the concrete that's being poured in the sidewalk outside or down the street. And in a sense, you've now decarbonized that two important things. You've decarbonized yeah. the building, you've decarbonized the concrete. You've solved two problems. By essentially recycling that carbon and those it's, carbon emissions, right? You're right. 
Okay. Right. You've taken them out of the equation. They never hit the atmosphere. You've hmm. taken them out. You've solved that problem. The boiler has combustion. The combustion creates CO2. But you have figured out how to do it in a way that the CO2 never hits the atmosphere. And therefore, that should be a good thing, right? It's another what's the catch. Like, it, it sounds what's great. What's the catch? Yeah, right. The catch is that when Local Law 97 was passed, nobody envisioned this. So it doesn't fit. Somehow the city has to create room for it. And I love Local N97. I think on the whole, it's going to decarbonize this very hard to decarbonize sector. But it also is cumbersome. The architecture, the policy doesn't allow for the innovation that would naturally happen to really take off. Hmm. There are other and that examples. would be the thing to fix it. Yeah, I mean, carbon press is just yeah. one example, but there are other examples too. The people who are trying to do community solar have a different version of the same problem. Where it's not clear who gets credit mm. when a whole bunch of buildings get together and create a, a community solar project. How do you divvy up all those credits? Who gets them? Which mm. you know. So I think that what what is really important is that we create policies that are nimble and flexible enough to encourage and accelerate innovation and then reward it when it happens and when it works, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, so that it's not, we're not relying on whether it's a building owner, a truck fleet, a, a, a farm operation for just the early adopters, just the true believers to, to give, it a, give it a try. But now it just makes sense because it's the fastest, most cost-effective way to comply with, with the law or to take advantage of a policy opportunity. So I think that's, you know, and there are a lot of examples. The building sector one is a really good one. Um, so what's what's the, the policy? Obviously, very few of us listening to this episode are actual drafters of policy, but just in terms of what we... <laughs> maybe not maybe not um <laughs> but in terms of what we should advocate for what we should yeah. look for what do you think is the best way to draft or like contemplate policy that avoids that is it really broad language like okay here's here's the goal by this year figure it out and then trust that they will i i don't think it's one size fits all i mean i do think policy has to have certainty uh -huh. that people who are investing and innovating know what they're aiming for and that they know that they're going to get credit when it happens. Right, That's yeah. Trick, right, so that, you know, if Carbon Quest at the end of the day shows that their system works, building owners are only going to use it if they know they're going to get local on 97 credit. Otherwise, exactly. it's couple of buildings where they want to give it a whirl and they want to, for some reason, you know, that they, they want to be innovators. They want to be early adopters, but you're not going to get to scale. And, and that seems to be the, the that's, disincentive. That's the thing is how do we get to scale? Going all the way back to uh, a too long story at the beginning of how I got from NRDC to global lead and gas, you know, the name of the game, if we're going to solve this problem is getting to scale. Mm -hmm. And so we need policies that do this. So they need to be certain. There needs to be certainty in terms of what are the goals, what are the expectations, what are the timelines. But then there's got to be, there has to be built into it 
the structure that rewards innovation and and is nimble enough to bring it in when it happens. Flexible in terms of the means yeah. to get there. Bring it in. If somebody has a better idea, if somebody thinks that you could put ethanol through a diesel engine and decarbonize long haul trucking or agricultural equipment in the process, great. Right out. Yeah. Let's get it out there, see yeah. if it works. And if it works, let's get it to scale. Now, if somebody has an idea about capturing carbon emissions from natural gas, boilers, and then embedding it in carbon, decarbonizing both, embedding in concrete, decarbonizing both, great. Let's get it out there. Let's get it to scale. You know, Science is pretty good at it, what it does. Yeah. And I think this is potentially a good model in terms of policy industries following the experts yeah. that could even, if we do it well, it could branch out into things like healthcare policy, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So my takeaways are, are that, and we need some sort of just like fun financial incentive, golden ticket type <laughs> policy right. yeah. for right. businesses. And then Brooke, did you want to talk about just taking, what are our takeaways in terms of, um, I know that Brooke and I have been talking a little bit about how much emphasis we as individuals can and should put on our own actions and where our advocacy is best put in terms of like federal level, maybe international level, local, state, and then Brooke, if you want to expand on any of sure. those questions. I think that the, you know, the first thing that I kind of mentioned when I was introducing the topic is this sense, the sense from, from a lot of young people that the people who are in power don't necessarily care to make the changes necessary in order to uh, affect real change that is going to prevent disastrous climate change from happening. And uh, I think also because the rhetoric for so long about the environment was, um, you know, we need to, the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Like, you know, you need to personally um, eat less meat and, and recycle all of your plastic and glass. And, you know, you need to like not, not consume as much or you need to, to ride the, your bike to work. A lot of people did that. And then we realized at a certain point that the real problem um, was to an extent personal choice, but that wasn't the main issue. The main issue was these huge corporations uh, making poor choices that they knew would affect, I mean, you mentioned the Exxon thing, um, and also government choices, either lack of policy or um, failure to incentivize innovation, as you said, or um, just subsidizing the fossil fuel in industry, other industries that had a bad impact. So I think that um, how much of how much can we do as individuals realistically, and what is what is the actual what are the actual actions that we need to take that will affect change in in, in, in environmental policy? Is it about who we vote for? Is it about you know, organizing? Is it about making better consumer choices? Like what is the, what is going to make your book? <laughs> exactly. What's actually going to, to, to cause change? It's certainly all of the above. Mm. But I think it's really, I mean, one takeaway, I think from this conversation is that individual efforts on their own are not enough. After all, we have to decarbonize the entire economy, mm -hmm. right? And if I, um, change my diet that that has some impact but 
I'm not changing the entire agricultural sector right and how they operate because because I decide that I'm only going to eat meat twice twice a week mm-hmm. not at all right mm-hmm. um, so policy matters voting matters organizing to get numbers matters I mean I think that the other thing that I, I said at the beginning I'm super optimistic and one of the reasons I'm super optimistic is that I think that um, I think the generation coming up is there's so much excitement. I've worked with some very local groups of high school and college age environmental activists who may not have 30 years of experience, but they sure have energy and creativity and new ways of looking at, you know, at how to solve problems that Mm -hmm. is critical and then you know you know small local groups here in the city but also you know look at some of the movement groups that have really taken off the sunrise movements and extension rebellion and and others that you know amazing energy and new ideas um that's really great you know uh i think that it's a hard question to answer because there is no one answer mm-hmm. you know I'm a very politically oriented person, so mm-hmm. I went into a, it went down a, a path that was all around changing policy, getting involved in organizations that would elect environmentally focused legislators. That that's what worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to work pretty well in terms of what you've accomplished. Impact, so, yeah, yeah. It, it bears repeating. Probably. Yeah, thanks. Although yeah. I, I stand on the shoulder and side by side with a lot of people who aren't on this podcast, but who are <laughs> critical to everything that I've ever accomplished. But, um, you know, for somebody else who is technically oriented, it's, mm. you know, it's en- if coming up with the engineering solution to a vexing problem to somebody else. It's about getting involved in a local organization and changing a local law or a a practice in you know in your town or city mm-hmm. it, it really varies I mean I think I, I think that there is no one answer there's no question we need dramatic changes in policy mm-hmm. because if I want a vehicle that is going to be zero carbon impact I can't just ask Ford to make it yeah. need yeah. Call EPA to set policies that will drive forward towards making that vehicle and that will set policies that will drive the fuel or power going into that vehicle to be renewable. Uh-huh. Need all those things to happen. So, so there's, no, there's no getting around the, the macro policy changes. Uh-huh. There's no getting around changing investments. Uh, just this week, uh, Exxon... You know, three sh- three board of director role uh, seats went to activist shareholders who were going to push Exxon to invest more heavily into renewable fuels. Oh wow! Okay. Happen. Exxon's got a long way to go before it's on anybody's green list. Mm-hmm. But um, but you know, the big legacy companies need to need to change their business models and what they're doing. And I think many are. And I work with some of those companies. You know, um, so maybe bringing them in also uh, rather yeah, than because they want to do it yeah. right. Sorry, sorry if it seems like I'm 
this answer is wandering around, but it's because there's so many different ways that one can go. And I think right, it's an easy question. Day, yeah. You got to follow what's right for you. I never could have written Bill McKibben's book. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank God he wrote it. Thank God he writes every day. Hmm. Thank God he, he left, you know, he left his writing career for a while to start 350.org with a bunch of you know, other climate activists and it turned into what it turned into, you know. Everybody has something they can offer. So I think maybe that's the answer is what can individuals do? If you feel like this is your interest, this is how you want to manifest that interest, um, then that's the way to go. So that's it sounds, if the bottom line is staying educated and doing with that what you will and what you can. Um, do you have any, I mean, I'm sure you're exposed to so much in the course of your work, but if somebody wants to stay informed so that they can, you know, if they're a writer, they write, if they're um, an advocate, they advocate, if they're an engineer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what is a good method to stay abreast of, you know, here are some policy things, here are some votes that are coming up, here are some issues that are on the table now. Um, or even the science behind mm-hmm. it. Yeah, like what are some good things that you consult that people could look at? Um, I happen to love Bill McKibben's blog. Um, what's the link to that or what's the URL? That's, so that's a great question. It's through the New York. I get it through the New Yorker I'll look it website up and then you sign up for the blog and then you get the blog. Uh, I don't <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm looking. I can link it in the description. Hold on. I'm and find it. Yeah. On all day, so he's at <laughs> Bill McKibben. Like a, on my phone, and I hit it. <laughs> on Twitter, he's at Bill McKibben, M C K I B B E N, and there's also BillMcKibben.com. Yeah. So there that's a good start. There we so go. I, I really like his stuff. I think. And then 350.org looks like. The yeah, other I one. think his his I think his writing is really good because he's covering the big issues. And he's also uh, covering, you know, very micro level stuff too. He also gives voice to a lot of others. He has mm. a thing in his blog that he calls passing the mic where he gives voice to somebody who I always, I've never heard of before. And they are doing so something in and of itself. That's awesome. On some issue somewhere in the climate, you know, ecosystem broadly defined. And so I like his stuff a lot. Um, I get a lot from, you know, some of the Axios and there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. And it depends where you want to go. Um, well, that's a good but, start. Yeah. 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 There's, there's no shortage of a lot of people who are writing great stuff. Um, I think if you start to Google your, the issue you care about, you're going to find all, <laughs> kind, all kinds of stuff out there. <laughs> Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, and thank you again, Rich, so much for coming on and explaining these super complex ideas to us. Um, do you have any like final words or anything to promote or talk about anything that people you want people to look into or find you at, anything like that? Yeah, so you can find me uh, on LinkedIn at Rich Castle, uh, R-A-C-H-K-A-S-S-E-L. That's probably the easiest way. Um, uh, that's where I'm most active. I got a really dormant, really lame uh, uh, Twitter address. I don't want to tell anybody. <laughs> um, it's a secret. Again, I know you through my mom, so you are 
my mom's generation of right. internet personalities. So. That's right. That's yeah, right. I guess the first time someone's actually mentioned their LinkedIn on this podcast. So that's that's impressive. It's true. Yeah. There we go. There we go. I know. Uh, but you know, but I think you know, my parting words is I'm just you know, is where I start, which is I'm super energized. Um, I think that we're at a political moment that the climate movement has never seen before. Mm. I think that uh, if you're new to getting into climate advocacy, I would not be discouraged by progress coming slowly or by bumps along the way, because the path, um, you know, I can now see over, you know, three plus decades, the path has been one of progress on many issues. And now this was the one we had a hard, the hardest time cracking, and now we are. And I think it is an exciting moment. It, yeah, politically, technically, economically, I think there's all sorts of stuff that's going to happen. I'm super optimistic that we're going to figure out how to do what we need to do at scale to avoid, you know, all the catastrophic impacts that we worry about. So, and that's a good, you know. And that's it. Side note. I that's mean, it. that's awesome to have that level of optimism, but also realism from somebody who knows what they're talking about. So yeah, good to hear. So it's comforting. Yeah. It really is. It really honestly is. And I will keep turning my lights off when I leave, unless the cat is here and nervous. Um, and then I have to leave them Gotta on. Gotta think about the cat but, in situations, um, you know. Otherwise, you know, I'll keep recycling till till the day I die, unless they come up with something better. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. Well, yeah, well, that's all I can do. Really thank you so much for joining us. Thank it you. was a wonderful conversation. And right. if anyone ever wants to reach Rich in a, a means beyond LinkedIn, you can also always reach out to either one of us. Um, and I can be found, if you are inclined to find me, at MKZ Joy Brennan on Instagram and on Twitter, also a dubious presence. But uh, get me to a nunnery with the number two. Brooke? You can find me at Brooke Angeline on Instagram and BKE Rogers on Twitter. Um, Yeah, send us questions if you have them, as always, or future topics you'd like to hear about. And thank you so much for listening. Oh, yeah, baby.